Amen. How great is our God. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. I read from the New Revised Standard Version, updated. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be reckoned as righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for fathers on this day and for their love and care for us. We thank you especially for godly fathers, fathers that pattern their instruction in their lives after your law and after your will. We ask now, O oh Lord, that you'll speak to us through this word as it is proclaimed, that it will teach us something new. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The rules are made to protect us. Normally, that's how rules work. They're made to protect us for our own benefit. Did you know, though, that most rules come about because somebody did something they weren't supposed to? If you see a sign at the zoo that says, don't throw stuff at the monkeys, it means somebody at some point decided throwing stuff at the monkeys was a good idea. And they had to make a rule about it so that other people would not do the same mistake. When I moved into my first parsonage over 25 years ago, I discovered something that I had never known before, even though I had grown up in parsonages all my life. I had never had to deal with the fact that when you moved into a parsonage, you got a list of rules for living in the parsonage. How many of you knew that there were rules for living in your parsonage? Yeah, there's rules. They have a whole set of rules that they give. And there's, there's the general church rules, like these are the, like, up from the top. And then there's the individual church rules about their parsonage. And in this parsonage that I was moving into, which, by the way, was about 100 years old, and it creaked every time you walked in it, it was, it was an old parsonage. I was straight across the railroad track so I could hear every single train four times a day. I counted them every day for seven months. There were rules, and I got a list of several pages long of rules to live in the parsonage. Now, remember, I am, I am in my first year of seminary. I'm a young person. I by myself. And I get about three pages of rules for living in this house. And I began to read through them, and I, a lot of them made sense, you know. Leave the place better than you found it. 
If you have pets, any damage they do to the parsonage is coming out of your paycheck. Uh, you know, things like that all made sense until I came down to this rule. It says, under no circumstances will any work be performed on motorized vehicles inside the parsonage or any of its rooms. I mean, that shut out all my ideas of what I was going to do on the parsonage right then and there. Under no circumstances, no work shall be performed on any motorized vehicle inside the parsonage or any of its rooms. Well, I needed to find out how this rule got on the books. And I happened to live next door to one of the church members, who, by the way, kept closer eye on my house than, than I did. I said, why did they put this rule in here? What happened? You know, there's always a story behind every rule. And he said, well, did you, did you notice the den? I was like, yeah, what about it? Did you notice the, air, the little area rug in the middle of the den? And I said, yes. I said, go look at it again and then come back to me. So sure enough, I went over there and I looked at the area rug, and I realized that there was a big black circle all the way around the rug. And I lifted up the rug, and I found that that black circle was a solid dot, huge dot in the middle of the floor. And I went back and I said, that's why the rule's there, isn't it? He said, yeah, we had a pastor who had a motorcycle and he would regularly bring it into the den to work on it. And one day when he was doing the oil change, he forgot to cap it. And all night that oil dripped into the floor, soaked into the floor, and formed this big circle on the floor. And no matter what we've done, short of replacing the floor, we could not get rid of the dot. So we got ourselves a little area rug. And I had to laugh because the area rug wasn't big enough for the dot. But you see, that rule came into being because somebody had done something in the past that people didn't want repeated. It was there because somebody had made a mistake and we didn't want that mistake to be duplicated. The rule was there to protect the parsonage from further dots being formed in any of its rooms. According to Paul in our scripture today, the law came into being because people needed boundaries and a moral code to live by so that they would know what was right and what was wrong before God. Because if you don't have rules, then somebody could say, well, nobody told me I couldn't bring my motorcycle into the den and work on it. So I did it. You see, before the law came into being, before God gave the law, people were doing all kinds of things that were contrary to his will and desire for us. And it's not hard to figure out what people were doing because all you have to do is read the law and whatever the law says don't do, people were already doing. So when the law says do not kill, you can tell people were killing each other. 
When the law says do not steal, you can tell they were stealing and killing each other and taking from each other. They were all the rules that you see in the, in the Old Testament were there because people were doing these things already. And God needed to tell them it wasn't okay and that they needed to not do these things. So according to Paul, the law was given so that we could identify what was wrong, what was sin, and so that we could look to not do that in our lives. But Paul uses some very strong language when he talks about the law in Galatians. He says that before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law. And when you read that, it sounds very harsh. It sounds like you were in jail. It sounds like you were restricted. It sounds like you were being kept from doing things. And in, in a way, he's right. The law set boundaries of things you could and could not do. Things that were allowed and were not allowed. Do's and don'ts. Do worship the Lord. Do not worship other gods. And so forth and so on. The law limited what people could do and was acceptable before God. But Paul didn't want the law to be seen in a negative light. So what he does in our scripture today is after he says that it guarded us and protected us and kept us safe by calling it a guard, he uses different language to explain the relationship of the law to us. He says this, so that the law has become our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The word for tutor is paedagogos, and it means two things. Pais is child, and agogos is leader. Put the words together and you get mentor, tutor, leader of children. In ancient times, when somebody had a child and they were of means, they would assign somebody in the household, often a slave that was very trusted, to become the pedagogos of their child. They were the tutor. Anybody ever need tutoring for math? You remember what that was like, having somebody that was there, and you asked the questions, and they led you, and they helped you solve things. The pedagogos in this scene was somebody who was there to make sure that the child learned what was right and what was wrong, to lead them in right behavior in the household, to coach them, to mentor them, to inspire them, and to make sure that when they went out to represent the household, they did a good job because they knew how to behave and they knew how to act. So Paul takes the image of the law as just a disciplinarian or somebody strict, and he changes it and makes it into a tutor, something that teaches us, molds us, helps us. In this way, Paul explains that the law trains us and keeps us safe, and he says it does so until the arrival of Christ. The law was not meant to restrict us, according to him, but rather to free us to do what was right before God. Now that sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? Something that gives you rules is supposed to set you free to do that which is right. And so I had to look up 
a story in order to be able to explain that because it, 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 it's hard to, to wrap your head around that. So here's the story. According to the story, a group of children lived in a little town near a cliff. They were very afraid to go near the cliff because they were afraid of falling down the cliff and dying. So the adults in the community got together and they built a strong fence, tall fence, to keep the children from ever falling over the cliff. The children, who had been so afraid, were now able to use all the ground up to the fence for their games without fear of falling or even losing their ball down the cliff. Instead of restricting them, the fence liberated them to use all the space up to the, up to the edge of the cliff. Whereas before, they would have never gone near it because of the fear of falling. So it was with the law. God gave it to the people for their own protection and good. In this way, Paul says the law served for us like a mentor or a guide, similar to how we see the role of a father. It was given to us to teach us, to guide us, keep us safe from sin and from ourselves. It was a disciplinarian in that if we were wrong, it didn't sugarcoat things. It said you're wrong, period. And you need to get right with God by repenting of that mistake. But it was still meant to teach us about our need for God and the need for forgiveness and redemption from our sins. Now, growing up, I'm sure some of us heard this phrase, just wait until your father gets home. When you heard that, what did it mean? In your household, if your father was the disciplinarian, you heard that phrase often. And what it means is, when your father gets home, there'll be consequences to your mistakes. Whatever you've done, your father is going to find out, and he will administer the punishment or the discipline for what you have done. When we heard that phrase, it normally costs us to be afraid. Oh, no, when dad gets home, I'm really going to get it. Well, if we think about it that way, it sounds like really bad news for dad to come home, doesn't it? I mean, you almost want to not have dad come home in that circumstance because you know you've messed up. So what is Paul doing here? He's saying, I'm going to change things up. What happens is that the law came so that we would know what was wrong but it only came so that it would fill the gap between a time and when Jesus would come to bring us grace and forgiveness. And so the new phrase is just wait until Jesus comes. Because Jesus comes not to judge, but to redeem, to forgive, and to offer grace. To give new life where there wasn't life. And so instead of a message of you're in trouble, mister... It's a message of hope and redemption and grace. Just wait until Jesus comes, for when he does, he brings salvation and he will make your relationship with your father, your heavenly father, right. 
The law in this regard no longer becomes the boogeyman. It simply becomes a reminder that we need Jesus because Jesus is the only one that can restore our relationship with our Heavenly Father. The law gave us the moral framework, but it never saved us. It pointed to our wrongs, but never gave us an opportunity to fully be redeemed from our wrongs. No matter how much we tried, we were never able to fulfill it on our own. And so when Jesus came, he changed the emphasis from salvation by merits, by what you do, by fulfilling of the rules, to salvation through faith and grace through him and through what he did for us on the cross. Does that mean that we no longer need the law? Absolutely not. As Christians, we respect and revere the Jewish law knowing that it was given an incredible wisdom by God. God does not want us killing each other. He does not want us cheating each other. He doesn't want us to have other gods before him. The law is wise in that it points us to things that we do need to do or not do. But we don't look to the law to be saved. We look to Jesus for that. Jesus is the only one that gives us salvation. Instead of the law being our tutor now, Jesus Christ is our instructor, is our teacher, is the Messiah that we follow. We follow him because he summarized the law in just two phrases. Oh, who doesn't like summaries? You know, I have to admit, I did so many cliff notes in high school and college. We like the short version. We like the abridged version. And Jesus summarized the law in just two phrases. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. Boom, there it is. What he was trying to say is it all comes down to this right relationship with the Heavenly Father and right relationship with each other that comes out of that relationship with your Heavenly Father. To explain this, Jesus, uh, Paul says basically that when we become Christians, we, we have to put on Christ. We have to put him on and in order to understand the context, you have to understand how people did baptisms back then. When we have baptisms nowadays, we all get dressed up for the baptism, right? Put on our nice threads, come to church to get baptized. If it's a baby or an infant or sometimes a child, we dress them up in white from head to toe so that they can come to their baptism. In ancient times, the white robes, the white clothing did not come on until after they were baptized. Somebody would literally stand next to the place where they were being baptized holding the white clothing so that when they came out of the water, they would put it on them to signify that they had now been redeemed, forgiven, washed by Jesus Christ and that they were now a new creation. They literally put on Christ externally to signify what internally had already happened. And so baptism became a sign to the world that they truly were believers in Jesus Christ. Paul says, when you put on Christ, everything that used to define you 
is not your primary definition anymore. Everything that used to identify you is no longer what's important. Your relationship with Christ becomes the primary identifier in your life. Some of you probably grew up in a time like I did when you were known by your relationship to your family. Whenever I did something, I was not Miguel. I was Miguel Sr.'s son. I was the preacher's kid. <laughs> they always identify me by that relationship. Paul was saying that when we come to Christ, when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we become part of the family of God. We become accepted as children of God. And now everything about us is identified by that relationship. And so people will see us and they need to see in us our Heavenly Father. They need to see in us Christ. They need to see in us Jesus. And so putting on Christ becomes something that is not just external but internal because we begin to change the way we act, the way we talk, the way we treat others, the way we go about our daily lives to reflect the family that we are now a part of. The inside must match the outside. When it doesn't, our witness suffers. Have you ever heard the phrase, oh, and he's a Christian? What are they saying? They're saying the inside is not matching the outside. What they say they believe is not what we're seeing. The love they profess for each other, we don't see it, we don't feel it. They're not seeing that you have put on Christ and that he's not just on the outside, but on the inside in your life. Paul says when you come to Christ, when you put on Christ, you become one body, one people. He says you're no longer Jew or Greek. You're no longer male or female. You're no longer slave or free. These categories that we put ourselves in, these buckets that we try to put people in are not what's important in terms of your identity. Your identity is in Christ who gave his life for you on the cross. And you are now God's children Heirs of the promise alongside with Abraham. And I want you to understand how big a claim this is. For a Jewish person to say that Gentiles are heirs of the kingdom of God. For a Jewish person that is part of a more male-directed society to say that women are children of God equally with them. For them to say that the slave is equally included in the kingdom as the free person. This was radical for Paul's time. And what he was saying is what, whatever your label individually is, is secondary to your primary identity as a child of God and a member of the household of God. Paul was arguing that as Christians, we must keep our relationship with God the Father as our primary identifier. When you introduce yourself to somebody, you should be able to say, I am a child of God. And yes, my name is so-and-so, by the way. 
but the primary, primary identifier should be your relationship with the Heavenly Father. So he says, put on Christ, clothe yourselves with him so that Jesus becomes who people see when they look at you. So his grace, his love is what they experience when they are dealing with you so that they know that you are the heir of a kingdom and it's not a kingdom on earth, but the kingdom of heaven and that you are now following the laws of God, not in order to earn heaven, but because heaven has already been promised to you. Did you know that? We're not earning our salvation, folks. Our salvation was already bought by Jesus Christ on the cross. We are merely thanking God for his goodness and his grace by living our lives in ways that honor him and show that we are part of the family. You know, children believe that their parents can fix anything. I don't know how many of you are fathers here, but if you're a father, you probably had this experience at some point. Your child broke something, and they brought it to you to fix it. Because they knew that you were handy and you were the dad and you have all the answers. At some point in your life, you came to a point where they brought something broken to you you couldn't fix. They brought it and you could not fix it. It was beyond your abilities, your capabilities, some people went out and bought a new one, never told them that they never fixed it. But whatever was broken, you could not fix. The reality is that we love our children. We try to instruct them. But there are things in their lives that we can't fix. Only God can handle. And it's important for us as children of God to identify those things and bring them to Jesus and let, them, let him be the one to get them straightened out. Paul was telling the church in Galatia, remember to put on Christ. Remember to keep your relationship with God the Father as primary in your life. And remember that you are called to be one body in Christ. Doesn't matter what the other designations are you still need to be one in Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word. We thank you, O oh Lord, because you continue to call us to be one in Christ. We continue, O oh Lord, to call us to put on Christ every day. You continue to call us to live our lives in ways that honor you as our Heavenly Father. You continue, O oh Lord, to direct us through your law and through your word. Help us on this day, O oh Lord, to remember to honor you through everything we do, everything we say. That, O oh Lord, that when people look at us, we will honor you through our lives. And that they will know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The altar is always open as we go back to worship. If you need prayer this morning, let us worship.